Welcome to the Antler Up Podcast, brought to you by Spartan Forge. Black Rifle Coffee Company is a veteran-owned coffee company serving premium coffee to people who love America. Fall is upon us, and there's no better way to get fueled up before hunt than with some Black Rifle Coffee. Coffee legitimately tastes better after a day in the woods or after a successful hunt. Fuel your next adventure and purchase at www.blackriflecoffee.com and use code ANTLER at checkout to save 20% off your purchase and or with your first coffee club subscription, Black Rifle Coffee. Last year was a wild year for censorship for hunters and anglers. We partnered with social media platform Go Wild to combat mainstream social media censorship. Go Wild was built by outdoorsmen and women by hunters and anglers just like you. Go Wild is a free social community. Not only are your photos not censored, they're encouraged on Go Wild. And Go Wild gives you points for things like sharing your trophies, gear reviews, and inviting friends. As you earn points, you unlock awesome rewards too such as gift cards, free swag, knives, huge discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex, and so much more. Oh, and if you create a free account, you can unlock $10 just for trying it out. Visit and download GoWild.com to get started. Tethered is a team of saddle hunting fanatics with a passionate addiction to whitetail hunting. Designing and engineering products to be a more efficient and confident hunter, Tethered produces the most mobile, stealthy, and safest elevated hunting gear on the planet. Built by saddle hunters for the saddle hunter. Head over to tethernation.com to see for yourself what exactly I'm talking about. America's Best Bowstrings has been manufacturing high-quality custom bowstrings in the USA since 2006. America's Best Bowstrings strives on the commitment to never end the search for perfection, and this has been the driving force behind the company. Innovative products for every archer out there. Go create a custom set today at americasbestbowstrings.com. Our friends over at Half Rack just released some awesome gear and they were great enough to give our listeners 10% off their order. All you have to do is click on the link in the podcast bio or the link on our link tree on Instagram and that will give you your percentage off at checkout. So get some of the highest quality hunting and outdoor accessories that will help you prosper in the field. Half Rack is aiming to be mindful of the past, conservation conscious and evolve into the future. Forged in combat and tailored for hunters, Spartan Forge stands at the nexus of machine learning and whitetail deer hunting to deliver truly innovative and science-based products that save the hunter time spent scouting, planning, and executing their hunts. You can now take Spartan Forge with you wherever you go by downloading the mobile app. Enjoy deer prediction analysis, weather forecasts, historical data, detailed journaling, as well as crisp maps. It's time for you to make the most of your season and let Spartan Forge do that for you. Use code ANTLERUP to save 20%. Check it out over at spartanforge.ai.
What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Antler Up Podcast. On today's episode, Dimitri and I, we were joined by Chad Sylvester of Exodus Trail Cameras. It was a great pleasure having Chad on the podcast to talk about all their cameras, his thoughts on banning of trail cameras usage in some Western states, and if he thinks that it will make its way over here in some primetime whitetail hunting states as well. He also answered some uh, listener questions and got into some trail cam strategies, and we wrapped things up talking about his awesome Kansas hunt where he tagged out on a complete stud from the ground. If you're in the market for a new trail camera coming up this spring, check out what Exodus Trail Cameras has to offer. So enjoy this fun episode and antler up. Well, Chad, if yeah. you want, let's let's do this. Let's talk about. Obviously, I would I would hope that our listeners know exactly who Exodus Trail Cameras are and who you are. You know, for the ones that don't, let's talk. I guess break it down. Like, if you look at the back of a baseball card, what are they seeing? Uh, you know, run it down that way. You know, you could even, you know, you have the stats over the last seven years, basically, like you're just saying, you know, what does, uh, you know, who are you, what's the company about and, you know, what do you offer for individuals? Yeah, dude, I, I love that. I, that, um, you know, you always get hit with like, okay, give me your 30 second elevator speech, but the back of the baseball card, like hits home. Dude, that's, that's good. <laughs> I, I might have to steal that. One. Yeah, man. Um, so the the athletic profile or the bio per se on the back of that baseball card would look like um, you know Exodus as a company really has two two goals and and they're both related around building um, or allowing consumers or helping consumers have better hunting experiences through products and through content um, you know over the last seven years in 2015 we launched as a, a direct to consumer company. And we wanted to fill the niche of um, a trail camera company that, or just a company, a product company in general, that serviced the end user and not, you know, a box store or the retail buyers. Um, and now, seven years later, like the D2C thing is becoming super hip and super trendy. And uh, I'm really proud of, you know, the guys and the team and the things that we built kind of being on that front wave of um, consumer direct um, product companies in, in the outdoor space. I mean, it's been happening for years and years and years in other, in other markets, but in the outdoor space, it seems like, you know, it's slow and um, things don't move quite as fast in this industry. So we're pretty proud to be uh, kind of on the forefront of that. Um, that's kind of it in a nutshell, man. We, um, you know, we launched this Exodus outdoor gear. We had visions of kind of dabbling in some, uh, other product categories and we got our butts kicked the first two years. So we just kind of took a step back and said, okay, um, we know trail cameras. We're good at trail cameras. This is kind of our bread and butter. Let's stay in our lane and stay focused here and build a business before we really venture out and, and take any, uh, any further risks. Now getting into trail cameras, was there something that, you know, as hunters that you saw that there was something lacking or, you know, did, were you just technology, something that kind of, uh, attracted you guys a little bit now, like what made you go down the trail camera realm as far as in the industry? Well, you know, my brother and, and so there was two other original co-founders with the company who are no longer with us, uh, Matt Kleins and my brother, Steve. And, um, Steve had been running cameras since the 35 millimeter days, like film cameras back in <laughs> the late nineties. And, um, so we had, you know, 15 years, 16 years of running cameras, we have kind of gone through every brand and 
um, had better success with one brand or one model. And then the next year we would try something else. And uh, we got tired of buying stuff and not having any back end support really. So over a period of time, like we just start tearing these things apart to see how they were built. Um, you know, we would order stuff off DigiKey to try to fix them. We had a soldering gun, like soldering <laughs> stuff on a board, just kind of like Frankenstein stuff. Um, and we're doing this in the garage. Like there's no, you know, dust free or clean rooms. We're just like, just tinkering, you know? Yep. And, uh, that led to in 2013 or 14, I was on whitetail lease with uh, Matt Klein and we were both driving six plus hours this lease. We were two youngest guys in the lease. So we kind of formed a bond there. And, uh, of course we were having trail camera problems being six way, six hours away from home. It was frustrating. And it was really Matt's idea to get this thing going. He was like, listen, like there's a need for a company to, you know, offer quality products, but also go the extra step in supporting their customers the way, you know, you, someone would be proud to do. Um, I think, you know, in so many business models these days, everybody's focused on, on volume and, you know, that personal touch is kind of lost. And I think that you see that with all technology, like, you know, if it's regardless of what company it is, you know, you get stuck on, you just get stuck on hold on a call center. Um, and in the hunting demo, like that just doesn't work. Right. You, you know, you don't feel, you don't feel good about it. So knowing those two things, the, the, you know, the quality products direct to consumer and, you know, the, um, the service side or the back end support, knowing that there were voids there, it just kind of, everything just kind of fell into place. I love the fact of what you said is having that kind of like that connection. Like if someone were to have an issue <clears throat> or maybe, a, I don't know, just an idea or a question regarding this, it's not very hard to probably get a hold of you and just say, hey, Chad, like, what do you think of this? Or I had this, you know, this issue or how do I go about fixing this or whatever thought process? You know, am I stretching that a little bit or, you know, would you agree on that? No, I, I mean, in the first couple of years of building the company, we were doing things that weren't scalable. I mean, we were handling customer service ourselves. There's three of us. I mean, we bootstrapped everything. Um, and that was a 24-7 connected line to our personal cell phones. That has taken a step back <laughs> over the last seven years. It's, um, I don't think that's manageable anymore. But we have people in place, um, you know, to field service calls and emails or inbound inquiries nine to five, five days a week. And then, you know, if there's an urgent, something that urgent like comes in, like usually Jake or myself or somebody will get to it um, over the weekend. But on top of that, that's part of the reason like we've gone, you know, pivoted into this branded content is to help educate consumers, whether they're buying our cameras or somebody else's cameras, all the stuff we're doing on YouTube, all the stuff we talk about on podcasts, like yep. a lot of it is applicable to any trail camera users. It's just not Exodus customers. So, you know, that going back to that mission statement about, you know, um, helping hunters have better experiences through products and content. Like we want to do that for, for everybody across the board, not just Exodus customers. Yeah. I love that. I absolutely love that. Now, what would you say, you know, looking like break down, I guess your cameras, like who, what can like, what kind of consumer or hunter does, you know, the render kind of tailor to the, the lift to and the trek? Like how does, how do you kind of look at that model, like your model as far as your, your products are concerned and, and how do you kind of stay like focus in on that, on that hunter? Well, we design products around, I don't want to say specific purposes, but they all have a purpose. So mm -hmm. when we look at the way that we've ran cameras over the last, 
you know, 15 or 20 couple years now, but, you know, from 15 or 2000, year 2000 to 2015, you know, you have these areas that we call static environments and we have areas that you call dynamic environments. And the static areas, the static environments are areas where you can kind of dictate where deer go. Like in Ohio, you can bait. Baiting is legal. So if you're running a, a feeder or a corn pile or whatever it is, you don't necessarily need a camera that has an ultra fast recovery time or an ultra fast um, trigger speed because those deer are going to spend a lot amount of time there and you can kind of dictate movement to and from. So you can kind of, um, you, you kind of have a leg up on running cameras in those static environments. Another example would, would be a, like a, like a scrape, a community scrape. So you have a specific area that you're targeting there and you know, deer are going to spend a lot amount of time. So from a consumer standpoint, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to spend the extra dollars on a high-end camera that has, you know, top-of-the-line specifications from A to Z when you're not utilizing them. So knowing that, that's kind of where that the, the Trek model kind of comes in. It's a basic, reliable camera. You put it up, it's going to take pictures. It has good battery life, and it, it really excels in those static environments. Now, you could flip the, flip the script there and say, okay, why well, run all my cameras on trails and big ag and food plots where you don't know the direction of travel. Right. You don't know the approximate distance all the time. So you do need a camera with a faster <laughs> trigger speed. You do need a camera with faster recovery times. You need longer detection, longer flash ranges. And that's, that's really um, what we built the, the lift to around. Um, and of course the mad craze of cell cameras over the last couple of years, you know, cell cameras have re- really kind of hit critical mass here in the last 18, 24 months. Um, you know, that's what the, that's what the render is built for. So you have full OTA control or over the air control of that device. So anything you could do with the camera, you can do with your mobile phone. And that's the real experience with a cellular product when it's built the way that it's intended to be used. Like you hang it up, you're just, you set it in the woods, you, you have a decent amount of external power, a solid ex- external power source, and you're using your phone to, you know, control that thing. And that's where the interaction is, is through the mobile device not necessarily the camera. Right. Now, here's what I have when I asked, uh, was it the over the weekend or yesterday even, I asked uh, some people on Instagram, uh, what questions do you have and everything like that. And um, so I have two on there that I, I kind of picked out that kind of I think would be pretty good to uh, ask you. And one of them was being, you know, what was your thought? And I know you talked about it already. You did a podcast on, on your the ban of, of the, uh, the trail cameras mm-hmm. out in Utah. I mean, if you want to give a quick cliff notes onto that, but the second part of that question was, do you see that ever happening or trickling to our states out here on, in the east side, especially these whitetail states like Ohio, like where you're at in PA? And do you see any right. anything happening in the future of like that? Um, I think it's a very slippery slope. Um, you know, the Western hunting culture is a lot different than you know, the Midwest and even the Eastern States, but, you know, from a trail camera company standpoint, obviously like our view on this is going to be a little bit tainted, right? (laughs) You you can't, uh, you can't say that up front, but in Arizona, um, you know, the state, I guess in the West, let me back up a little bit on the, in the Western culture, water is such a big resource because it's so limited. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of these Western States take in state money, they take in federal money and they take in uh, private funds to help build these water holes. So they're, you know, water tanks or troughs or some kind of, um, uh, retainment system 
to hold water to you know improve the improve the, the habitat for the wildlife. And on public ground, these things have become so overpopulated with trail cameras and human intrusion, it's deterring animals from using them. So that's kind of what spurred the the conversation in Arizona. Now, obviously, the legislation has been written to completely ban all cam- all cameras on public and private. Um, so, and the same thing in Utah and Nevada. Um, Montana has kind of flip for flip flop back and forth over the last three or four years. And then you have um, uh, Vermont or New Hampshire. I think it's Vermont, Vermont, and you know, up in the Northeast that um, you can't run cell cameras. So I think you know there was a problem with the human intrusion as far as looking at um, cameras and human intrusion deterring animals from water sources, but giving giving some of these people the opportunity to take something away is not proven to be good for us as hunters. I mean, you see the movement in some of these Western states right now going towards predator hunting. There's, you know, Washington's bear season trying to be canceled. Um, the, the predator stuff in Colorado is going on. So it's a very slippery slope. And I think eventually it could migrate East if the trend in the Western states continue. Um, I don't see that happening in the next five years or 10 years or 15 years. Right. Um, but it's kind of scary to think about, honestly. Yeah. I, I want to ask this question just because I've, I mean, we have opportunities, I would say, of shooting a Pope and Young or something, but, you know, it's not something where uh, we, we get them on camera where, like, daily and there's plenty, a plethora of, of these opportunities. What is the rule, too, with, with uh, Pope and Young with cell cams? Isn't there something that was just put in, like, a year or two ago with that? Yeah, so we did a piece of content around this back in 2020, and it was very gray. It was written as, like, any um, any aid by an electronical device in location of an animal or to use to locate or to pursue an animal um, was not fair chase. And now they've, Pope and Young and Boone and Crockett both have taken a hard stance on cellular trail cameras and saying, like, yo, if that deer had ever walked in front of a cellular trail camera again, it is not fair chase. Wow. Um, so, again, Boone and Crockett being in Bozeman, um, being part of that Western culture, you know, I think, you know, I don't want to speak badly about them. I mean, we, we've donated to these organizations in the past as, as a company, and they've certainly done a lot of good for, um, for hunters and for wildlife. But right now, um, you know, their influence in some of these Western states is not, in my opinion, not all that positive. Um, now from like a hunter or consumer perspective, a lot of guys don't care because they, they won't put an animal in the books anyways. Right. But when you have that entity or that organization behind that movement, um, it doesn't speak well for, you know, um, hunters overall, I guess. Yeah. It's not a good situation. Yeah, and I think, too, I mean, banning trail cameras takes so much from your weekend warrior, too, right? You know, we talk about it if you have a family and uh, you have a job and, you know, you can't always put boots on the ground so much. And the the use of trail cameras, just think how much you just, we use them, you know, locally, too, right? Um, And then, you know, you go western, too, where you have to really hike up into the mountains and, you know, tougher terrain to get in there and stuff. So, 
Yeah. I mean, they are just making hunting tougher and tougher, right? You know, and we use products to help us out and make us more efficient and better hunters. And then, you know, I think a lot of it's political driven, right? Yeah. You know, and we talk yes. about as hunters, no matter if you're a gun hunter or bow hunter, we talk about it probably comes up at least once a podcast is, you know, we need to be together, right? Because like, like you said, Chad, it's a slippery slope. They take one thing, then they're going to go for the second thing. And then it's just going to be bang, bang, bang. And right. here we are left with nothing. So, <laughs> yeah. You know, the other thing too, it's not just, um, it's not just the hunters. I mean, when you look at the Western states, even as a resident, you're not guaranteed to draw or have the opportunity to hunt a certain species um, like you are through the Midwest. I mean, all of us as deer hunters, as whitetail guys, we're so used to buying, you know, an over-the-counter tag and like it's a normal thing. Like we know we're going to hunt come November. Like we know we're going to hunt our home state or, you know, the fall, I guess. Right. But there's guys in Western states that they might be building points for a certain hunt. And if they don't draw, like that might be their only opportunity for the year. So a lot of these guys use the, I'll say, hobby of running trail cameras as their kind of activity to get outside or to take their, their kids or their son, their daughters, and have something to do when they're not drawing tags. So, you know, you take that away. And then also, if, this is the part that boggles my mind. Like, cameras are such a powerful tool when, when used um, in kind of as data collection to, to make better conservation decisions. I mean – at the end of the day, like that's one of the most powerful things that you have um, from trail cameras. And like, you're telling me that you're taking that away from the private individual. Are you taking that away from government agencies as well to help them do their job better? So the whole thing is just bananas, man. I know. I, I I'm I'm so glad. Like, luckily, right now here in Pennsylvania. I think we have nothing to worry about at the moment. You know, I don't want to, you know, get too far ahead of myself. But I think of even what this has done for my own relationship with my father. You know, I, I've talked about it here since the beginning. We started our podcast two years ago of how hunting has, you know, rekindled uh, our relationship to be closer than ever before. And we've always had, um, you know, a, a good relationship. But I would say, you know, even more so the last six years that, you know, I've kind of really took took hunting a lot more serious and uh, and not just going in and hanging out with him and, and all, you know, all that type of stuff. But like even now, like we text and talk every single day something hunting related and a lot of it has to do with like our trail cameras like we're he'll constantly you know send me pictures or you know hey jared when are you coming up to let's go do our you know put out some stuff for for the deer herd uh, during this hard winter like whatever it may be where it, it's a bonding experience and you've hit you said it to it too chat when you're like hey is this maybe out west these guys are you know or, or women's taking their their children out there like you know it's a it's a it is a bonding experience and it could, you know, like I said, it's brought even my dad and I closer than ever before. Yeah. 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 Anyone that, you know, is thinking about this kind of stuff, I would urge them to go over and just follow the sportsman Alliance on, um, on Instagram or on their social pages. And they're pretty hip to kind of keep everybody informed with what legislation has been or what bill has been, you know, signed and brought into whatever um, voting process that it's uh, or whatever stage of stage of voting process that it's in. Um, and those guys are doing, they do a lot of the dirty work. Like everyone knows about, you know, national deer Alliance and, you know, um, 
BHA and like all the, you know, all the organizations that have a lot of, I guess, trendy marketing and stuff behind them. But the Sportsman Alliance are the guys that are doing all the paperwork to fight this stuff. So um, they do a pretty good job of keeping everybody informed of, of, of what's going on um, on that anti on that anti front. Yeah, we just got a message in our chat from Jonathan just saying, my son loves checking our family property cameras. He doesn't get a chance to go out hunt as much with me, so that's our bonding time. I mean, <laughs> you know, just something so little as that. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, and I think, too, like you said, Chad, is you got to follow organizations that do a lot of that dirty work because, you know, and you're if you've kind of – you know, a lot of people don't like politics, but you have to understand that these politicians are doing this stuff – they slide these bills because they know it's not going to be popular, right? So they're sliding right. this into the fine print of a huge bill, right, that may have nothing to do with hunting at all. Right. And then, you know, this bill as a whole gets passed, and then that hunting or trail camera or whatever it is is in there, gets passed, then it's done, right? You know, and you need these people to dive in to read each of these bills and right. read the fine print because, you know, look at these some of these bigger bills, not to get into politics here, but it just kind of relates to what we're talking about. Is there what, like thousands of pages? It's like who could go through that and really dive into that? And that's what's happening on the local level, the state level. So these people, and you got to be careful of what they're really trying to slide because they never do this. They don't talk about, hey, we're going to ban hunting or trail cameras. They don't announce it before they do it. They don't announce it till it's done. It's passed. It's too late to really do much. Yeah. Yep. Well, here's uh, – I think that was good. That's exactly what I was kind of hoping for. And uh, So, Chad, I appreciate your, your input. And, you know, you know I res- if anybody – of of that topic of who I want to hear a response from it's it's definitely you because your your boots to the ground in the trenches for that for sure um so one of the other the questions that someone uh, listed Chad was okay you've nailed down your location of where you're going to place your camera what is the ideal height which face and direction do you have it and the distance from say an x mark whether it be a um you know uh, trail or a scrape or anything along those lines. How, what's, what's that, uh, ideal height, your direction and distance. Yep. Um, ideal height for us is six to eight feet. And we do that because it's, it's, you know, I don't like anything lower than that. Six to eight feet keeps that camera out of the, you know, the flat line of sight of an animal. I don't like any higher than that because once you go over 10 feet, you get up, you know, 11, 12, 13 feet, you physically have to angle that camera down. And what you're doing is basically creating a void underneath that camera. And then also you, you're limiting the detection um, capabilities of the camera. So you're almost making it a, a static environment. So six to eight feet on height. Um, I'll take that a step further. And I like to put cameras on split trunk trees or a tree that's bigger than the camera profile. So I'm looking at this situation a lot like, like you're hanging a stand. I'm going <laughs> to make that camera as least noticeable as possible. Um, you know, I'll even go to the, the, through the process of using paracord or amount and, and ditch the strap. Uh, as far as, you know, distance away from my target area, um, every camera is going to be a little bit different. So I urge anyone to really get familiar with their products, hang them up in the yard, walk test them, figure out where they um, trigger the best. But for us, it's usually somewhere between 20 and 30 feet. Um, that's close enough to where you get good, solid data points, whether it's a photo or video, and it's far enough away where they're not in the face 
of the animal and it, and it's kind of less conspicuous. Um, one important note here that I think some people miss is how you place cameras on, on deer trails. You know, a lot of people take the, the thought that if they hang that camera on that trail and leave it, you know, kind of looking down or up the trail. So it's parallel, parallel with the movement that you're going to capture a longer movement, but that's at, you actually hinder the camera camera's ability to take photos. The, the camera's designed to detect perpendicular movement. So if you're monitoring trails or anything of that nature, we always, you know, 25, 30, maybe 35 feet at the most back off that trail. So you're monitoring it um, perpendicularly. So the movement is coming, you know, left to right, right to left. Um, and that allows your camera to trigger more efficiently. Yeah. And I think on that point, I th- a lot of people don't realize that capture sensitivity of the camera. Mm-hmm. And like you said, I think checking it and, and being familiar with your product is, you know, you go up and you set up a camera on a trail, you think you need to be close, right? And like you said, I think, and I probably make that same mistake more than anybody, is putting it too close to that trail. And then you, that's when you're left getting the ears or the butt or, you know, not capturing that full deer in that picture. Yeah, you're exactly right. So when you look at, like, um, this is going to get a little bit technical, but I'll, I'll try to keep it. Um, go for it, man. Get into it. Okay. <laughs> so when you look at, you know, the, the detection angle of the camera, most, a lot of cameras are around 50 degrees, but for this example, we'll just say it's 45 degrees. So at a 45 degree, you know, field of view or detection angle for every foot you get away from the camera, you have a foot of horizontal detection area. So if you were 10 feet away, if you place that camera 10 feet away from the trail, you're monitoring 10 feet of that trail. If you're 20 feet away from that trail, you're monitoring 20 feet of that trail. So when a camera is too close and you have horizontal movement like that, there's a very small window to actually capture that image or capture that video. So that's why, you know, we go back to that 20, 25, 30 feet, even on a trail, maybe 35 feet, because you, you get much more um, left and right or horizontal movement through that frame versus having it, you know, right on, right on top of the trail. That's awesome. And I'm, I, as you're saying all this, I'm thinking like, okay, that's why this camera, I get better pictures. This camera, I'm, I don't get better pictures. Uh, no, that's good. Now, let me ask you this one. Are you like, wh- what would you say is your split for your own personal cameras? Uh, do you run for pictures or video? Um, a lot of my stuff is still photo mode because I run a lot of long-term trail camera sets where I'll go and leave them and not check them for the whole year. I won't go back until, you know, uh, next month until February, March when I'm doing my postseason scouting and then I'll actually go pull the cards and, and review the data. So those are areas that, you know, I'm not really hunting, but I have interest in, mm-hmm. I really haven't got it figured out yet in areas that I'm hunting and that I know that I'm going to frequent often. I will run photo mode or I mean video mode. Um, but the thing that I run into, you know, I don't hunt a whole, a whole lot around the house. Um, I had one sit in 2021 within five and a half hours of my driveway. <laughs> so, you know, with a busy schedule and a lot of travel, I can't, I can't leave cameras in the field for a long time in video mode because the cards are going to fill up and I'm, I'm constantly worried about missing data points. So, um, most of the time I'm, I'm running photo mode unless I, you know, I have access to the camera. There's a couple private pieces, um, you know, within a half hour of the house that uh, we have cameras on. I don't really hunt them, but I have cameras on. All those cameras are in video mode. So it just depends on the 
on the setup, whether it's a long-term strategy, short-term strategy, um, how frequent I can get to that property, and then also what you know what capacity card the uh, camera can handle. Nice. Now, if someone that's never run video mode before, what would you explain to the advantages of, of running that um, and having that video intel to kind of go through the season of, you know, what you're looking for, whether it's deer movement or um, patterns? Yeah, there's so much more. There's so much more data you can get from a video. Um, even going down to, you know, individual characteristics of a deer's personality. I mean, I know that's kind of getting getting carried away, but guys who are really trying to target a specific deer, um, you can pick up so much more information on a way a buck comes into a scrape. Is his tail tucked? How aggressively is he, you know, pawing the ground or working that licking branch? Um, you know that he could be traveling from east to west or west to east, and he just didn't walk in front of the camera and turn around and go back from, you know, the same direction that he came from. So I think there's a, there's a lot fewer question marks um, when you have the video data versus the, the photo data. I mean, the photo stuff is great, but it's only, you know, one specific snapshot in time. You don't really have the whole picture, especially if you're limited on cameras. If you have a bunch of cameras scattered throughout the property, you know, you can go check them and you can kind of put the puzzle pieces together and say, okay, he was on camera A at this time, camera B the same day at this time, camera C the same day at this time. And you kind of have an idea of what's going on there. But when you're limited on cameras, um, you can't really do that. So that's, to me, that's where, you know, the video stuff shines. Now, you were talking a little bit about personality of that buck, whether he's coming in aggressive or not. Maybe he's a little more timid coming into that scrape. Does that kind of dictate how you hunt, whether it's calling? Because I know a lot of people, especially in high-pressured states, maybe Michigan, PA, gets thrown in there where, you know, especially public ground that gets hit so hard people don't like to call as much right um Mm -hmm. so is that going to dictate what even if you're on private and you see that it's more of aggressive buck maybe you know you're going to do a little bit more calling in the stand or if it's your target bucks a little more timid going into the scrape you're going to try to you know kind of go stealth mode and and try to just catch his movement is that kind of how you play into that video mode 100 percent. that's 100 percent accurate and in fact my uh Jake, my my partner here at Exodus, um, killed a buck based off of that exact scenario that you just <laughs> laid out. He had a he had a video of this deer coming in working scrape with his tail tucked um, the year prior, and two minutes later, a bigger buck came through worked the same scrape. And from that video, he determined that that deer was not the dominant buck on that parcel, and that he was timid because of that bigger deer. And the following the following November, he had an encounter with that deer. And he knew like he couldn't be over aggressive, like in a calling sequence or, you know, rattling antlers or anything, because the deer would probably shy away thinking, you know, knowing that there's a, a bigger, more dominant, more aggressive buck on that property. So he played it cool and uh, he killed that deer like 28 yards. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. Well, you, I actually, I had, I personally had a couple questions written down and you started to hint at some of it in your, in both of your previous two answers. So, um, I want to kind of go back uh, by one and you talked about like how you run your cameras, you know, all season long and you will check them maybe next, you know, next, like this upcoming month in February, March, you know, when you document your season data, you know, what is your process for that? Because that's something for myself, uh, I'm taking, I want to take a more serious approach at 
and mm-hmm. and just because I people that have listened to the podcast and just to bring you up to speed real quick, Chad, this past year between preseason, uh, you know, aka the summer, and during the hunting season, I would say was the best trail camera year for mature or just just as a improvement of quality of deer uh that we've got on camera in the last i would say what two three years for sure so like because of that i definitely want to go back document look at this data you know what is your process for doing that do you even like i mean you could nerd out if you want you could just give me the kind of whatever version you see fit but you know what does that look like for you really we're looking for specific daylight movements like we want to know when we can go hunt that deer the next year is what we're looking at one of the things that we found and we're not the first to talk about this don higgins talked about this 12 years ago um but there was a year in 2016 where we had over 100 cameras on a piece of public and we were trying to target really two or three specific deer and running that amount of cameras what we found was those deer would show up the same place the following year within just a couple of day window so we call it long-term or annual historical data is what we're looking for so we're trying to figure out, you know, what is that three to seven day, you know, three, four, five, six, seven day window where we can actually have a hunting opportunity at that deer in daylight. Um, so at the end of the year, you know, February, March, we'll go in, pull these cameras, and then basically we'll categorize those photos by specific deer if we have interest in them. And then we'll do night, night photos and day photos. So kind of two different legs there. And we'll batch those daytime movements up and try to figure out and think, okay, well, why is that deer moving? Did he get bumped? Was there a hunter there? Was there, um, did he get bumped by a coyote? Was he there on does? Was he there working a scrape? Was he there feeding? So we're just trying to kind of paint that picture um, of why that deer was there last fall. And what that gives us is we can look at a calendar for, you know, 2022, say, and kind of highlight those days. So if the weather lines up, if the food sources and all the variables are, are relatively consistent, you can almost, you can almost bet your paycheck that that deer is going to be back in that area uh, 365 days later. I mean, it's almost, it's, it sounds crazy, but it is eerie, like so eerie. Um, we've seen it play out, I don't know, four or five different bucks uh, with guys getting opportunities just in the Exodus office. And, you know, there's a lot of other guys that, you know, follow that strategy as well, but that's really what we're, what we're doing. We're just trying to bank annual data around daytime uh, activity and then kind of bookmarking those days in the following year. And then, you know, just going in and making sure that all the variables are the same food sources, pressure, um, relative habitat. Uh, and the weather is a big one. Um, making sure you have, you know, um, relatively consistent weather. And then obviously the wind. I mean, I think everybody these days is, are they're paying attention to the wind, how deer are moving with the wind. Right. And I used to think, I used to think it was a, a much bigger deal than, than what I do now. I just, over the last few years, I've seen so many deer do weird things with tailwinds and um, with crosswinds. Like, I'm not a believer that a deer walks with the wind in his nose 100% of the time. Um, I've kind of changed my stance on that the last few years. Now, how do you put all your data together? Are you using an app or are you using Excel? You just, like you said, you mark in a calendar. You know, I think because I think a lot of people try to be organized or they have the pictures in a folder. I think 
the where they go wrong is they just whether they don't want to put the time or the effort or they're not sure how to do it but you know because you talked about several different things daylight wind you know all these different factors that play in a role when you're trying to narrow these days down you know how are you kind of organizing that data to kind of put it in place in front of you to kind of analyze it and see what you want to do going next into next year so um you would think you know, having a, a technology company, I would, <laughs> I would be in Excel and I would have like some crazy algorithm that would calculate this stuff for me. But I literally have this leather bound journal <laughs> that I that I keep notes in. Um, I'm the kind of guy that likes to write stuff down. I don't just kind of old school that way. Um, you know, I'll make little, little notes on my MacBook, like in a certain folder for a deer, mm-hmm. you know, what wind he likes in a certain area or what the weather was. But, you know, as far as, use an excel file or a software system i don't i probably should i would be much more efficient i you know looking back at the amount of hours that we spend doing this stuff you know for a while we were using uh, a software program called deer lab owned by john livingston um and we used that i want to say 2015 16 and 17 um and we just got away from it one of the things i guess you know the the advancement in cellular technology and having this stuff on your fingertips, a lot of the stuff you can do on your phone right. and you're getting that in, re- in real time, um, kind of real time info. So you can almost do this, you know, an hour here, an hour there, a couple hours a week, and you can really formulate a solid plan for the upcoming year versus like some of this long-term stuff. You know, I can't run cell cameras in a lot of these places. So there's no cell service. Right. So, you know, February and March, I might sit down for a day and I have eight hours and going through trail camera pictures. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. No, that's awesome. And I, and one of the other aspects that you alluded to in one of your previous answers, you know, you were talking about like spooking deer and I've, I've listened and slash watched you talk about, you know, setting up your trail cameras to, to not spook deer, you know, how, what have you done maybe the last two years that you've progressed or, you know, that you could tell someone when you get that camera multiple times, or maybe that one time of that buck that just keys in on the, on your camera and then you stop seeing him like what what are some of the the key things that you've done to eliminate that that spook well just a couple of things i talked about just placing your camera so we have this thing we call like the spoof spook proof equation and um you know not to make this stuff too complicated because at the end of the day you got to put the camera where deer are going to walk in front of it so i don't want anyone to think like you know this thing <laughs> we're you know giving deer too much credit because we're not but <laughs> We're just trying to take out as many variables as possible. So if you have a system that you could follow to take those variables out, your success is going to be more consistent. Um, so again, going back to the height thing, six to eight feet is the height that we like. Um, split trunk tree or a tree bigger than diameter of the camera so it's not kind of spotlighted, I guess, or sticking out like a, like a sore thumb. Um, we use paracord third-party mounts a lot. Uh, 20 to 25 feet you know, distance from your target area. We're not sticking these things, you know, five feet away from a scrape and um, expecting deer not to, you know, have an adverse reaction from them or influence negatively influence them. Um, So those are the things that we do when we actually set the cameras up. But I think the biggest problem or people cause themselves with trail cameras is they just check them too often and they check, check them in an inconsistent manner. Um, now, if you're running cameras on, you know, eggs, uh, egg field edges and food source edges where there's only nighttime activity, I think it's a lesser of a lesser of a deal. But 
when you get into some of these areas that are more sensitive, like you don't want to be going in there every, every other week, every two weeks. Um, I think deer kind of figured that out. They note it. I, I think they watch us as much as, you know, we're trying to watch them. But at the same point in time, if you can do things consistently over time, I do think that they will get used to um, that intrusion to a point. I think we all, you know, know farmers or have heard stories about guys using four wheelers to, you know, check trail cameras on ag fields or, you know, farmers doing um, field work, whether they're turning dirt or planting and deer don't have any kind of um, negative. What's the word I'm looking for? Like they don't have a negative connotation towards that equipment. They've ever not, never had a bad experience. So they're not relating that to danger. So right. I think if you could do things in a consistent manner, um, you can probably get away with checking them more often, but I think it also takes, takes time to do that. Awesome. It is time for this week's Vortex Nation Highlight. Let's talk about trail cam height. And Chad mentions in this episode that he sets up his camera six to eight feet high from the ground. He finds this to be his sweet spot. And for this reason, it is important to always carry at least one stick with you in the timber when you're scouting and setting up cameras, especially in new locations. The past season, almost about 90% of our cameras were at this height with all of them getting great action and minimal to no detection from the deer. Keep this in mind as you get ready to head out scouting in the upcoming spring. Now, what would you say... Just because I, you know, it's to all, I, I just told Dimitri before we went live, it's you constantly have heard on podcasts or videos, you know, the cameras were telling me to do this. The cameras were telling me I needed to get in there and, and, and go kill this deer or, or however you see fit. What, you know, for someone that is kind of just maybe new to hunting or someone that's never really ran trail cameras or utilizing them wrong and just, you know, kind of like, like to, like, to be honest, Chad, Demetri and I here in central PA where we currently live on public land, we actually would pull a lot of them before the season or right around the season time frame, just because we've had plenty of trail cameras either stolen or just we, and just for the fear of that, you know what I mean? So we, right. we, we kind of took them away. So what does that even mean? So for someone that is just, you know, man, when the camera tells me to get in there, what the, what would you tell someone like, what does that mean? Well, I think if, um, around the rut, you know, going back to, you know, the frequency and you check cameras, the rut obviously is the time I think where you can get away with that. Like if, if I'm on a piece and I have standard SD card cameras on, on that piece and if it's nearby where I'm hunting, like I'll check that camera as much as I can because, Deer is only going to travel so far, right. um, especially in the, like in some of the areas that I hunt. They're only going to travel so far. And I'm, maybe that could be two miles. Maybe it could be three miles or whatever the case is. But if you have a recent photo of that deer, then you know he's in the area. So to me, that tells you, okay, he's here somewhere. Let me go scout and find him. Um, with the you know advent of cell cameras, that kind of changes things. You can put cameras in really sensitive areas like bedding areas and um, different things of that of that nature. And if you get a picture of a deer in a bedding area, then you obviously know you've done probably some preseason scouting to, or postseason scouting to know where that bedding area is. And if you get a picture of him at, you know, seven 30 in the morning going back to bed, well then, you know, you know, he's in there, um, you know, in understanding the structure of bedding and how deer bed with wind and topography or whatever, the, whatever the, the, the terrain that you're hunting, you can have a pretty good idea how he's going to get out of there. I'm um, not saying it's a, you know, a hundred, hundred percent bulletproof, like guaranteed you're going to get shot at him. Um, but you certainly have an idea of his whereabouts, I guess. 
but uh, like to get a to get a, a photo of a deer or pull a car to get a photo of a deer and say, well, the camera's telling me to do this. I guess it's, it comes back to doing your homework on that specific deer, I guess, and knowing um, that pattern that he's moving on, having some kind of historical information or some kind of history uh, with that deer to know his tendencies. Right. Um, so I, I think it just boils bed or boils down to, how much you know about the individual deer and how much homework and scouting that you've actually done. I think a lot of people are too dependent on trail cameras. I love trail cameras. They <laughs> sell them for a living. Like they're, they're, they're an awesome tool, but it doesn't take away um, the need for like on the boots, scouting and understanding wood, woodsmanship yep, yep. and understanding deer movement. That's exactly what Ryan was saying. He goes, you just got to get that wood, woodsmanship up you know, when we had him on the podcast. All right, Chav, last question before I want to get, I just, I want you to talk a little bit about your Kansas buck. So <laughs> before yeah. you, before you do that, uh, you know, the wrap up kind of talking a little bit about Exodus trail cameras, uh, anything in store for this upcoming year that people could look forward to? Yeah, we have some uh, we have some new products coming out sometime in 2022. We're not exactly sure when. Um, I'm guessing it's going to be the later part of the year, uh, probably towards the fall, quarter four. There's still some things to kind of iron out, I guess, um, before all that stuff happens. So it's kind of still in the works. But yeah, we have uh, several new things coming in 2022. Awesome, man. That's that's exciting. Well. Uh when this this podcast will actually air, Chad, next Wednesday, uh, so the PA Outdoor Show will still be going on, and so those of you that are listening, hopefully uh, next week when this airs, you know, get there, or if you've already been there, hopefully you had a chance to stop by and, and interact with the guys uh, from Exodus, so definitely check out those cameras. Now, the your Kansas buck, so uh, a buddy of ours, Aaron Hepler, do you know Aaron a little bit? Yeah, he just started writing for us. So. Yeah, exactly. So uh, when uh, when you shot your buck, he he and I were messaging. He's like, "Hey, look at this," because he's good friends with Clint and stuff. And yeah, Aaron's a wonderful individual, great person. Uh, I'm excited to see the content he puts out for you. So talk about that complete slob of a hammer you killed from Kansas, because <laughs> I I want to hear the details. Just because you got me so fired up to get ready to go out putting boots on the ground and trek through all this snow right now um i want to hear about your kansas buck man Dude, what a what a crazy crazy experience that was like that was the most um i'm pretty i consider myself to be kind of kind of stoic i guess kind of non-emotional pretty flat line mm-hmm. um that's just kind of my personality but dude i was so fired up <laughs> when, when i had that guy with that deer i was like crawling out of my skin it was unbelievable um the short story is uh Geez, let me try to make this short as possible. Um, <laughs> I had went into a piece that I had scouted in the spring, kind of on not last resort, but it kind of had it in my back pocket. It wasn't an area of focus because I had so much human sign on it. So I didn't put any, out any cameras in the spring. It um, kind of had to rope the piece off, but the weather was hot one day and we were, you know, Clint and I were doing some driving, trying to glass from the road and just kind of check out what was going on in that entire unit. And um, when I got down there, there was no you know, human traffic or signs of any human traffic. So the next day I dove in and I scouted my way in, I bumped a couple of does. They went to this kind of inside corner where this piece kind of laid out like a lazy W and only had access from the North from going North to South. I had like 600 yards of CRP and then you hit some timber with a, with a basically it was a Creek bottom. Um, the Creek was flowing. And then on the South side of the Creek, 
you had some more like high stem count stuff, more, more brushy vegetation, like, um, plum brush and like loc- small locust saplings. But, um, I bumped those two does on the way in. Um, I was basically scouting a, a timber finger that was, I was basically two thirds of the way in the property. Okay. Uh, just knowing where the deer were from my spring scouting, knowing where the sign was, I didn't want to, um, walk directly through all that stuff and blow it up. So I basically gave up the, the one third of the property to kind of circle around with the, what the wind was doing. The wind was coming out of the North Northwest. Okay. So on my way in, I bumped a couple of does and these does ran to this inside corner on this inside corner. CRP met the timber. There was a finger that came out and then there was, um, like, a like a patch of cedars, like a cedar thicket, basically. Okay. And that cedar thicket, there was, you know, to the, uh, let me see, to the east of the cedar thicket, there was um, some more plum brush and high stem count stuff, briars, some, you know, deadfalls and stuff. And with those does kind of ran past that and over to the timber. Well, as I was just kind of following them, um, I caught a buck with his nose to the ground. So I was like, man, I need to get a better look at him. Look like a like 120 inch deer. So I, I jumped back into the cedar thicket my back's to the cedar thicket and I had my bow and my pack and, you know, sticks and like I was, you know, basically walking in. So I knocked an arrow real quick, pulled out my rattling antlers and just made some ground noise, like a, like a buck yep. um, making a rub, trying to get him, trying to get that deer back out in the CRP so I can get a better look at him. Uh, so that went on for 20 minutes, never did see that deer. So at that point I'm like, all right, I just busted two does. There's a buck with his nose around. Obviously one of those does are hot. Like I just need to get set up. I need to be in a tree. I need to get set up in a tree. So as I turned my back towards that cedar, or as I turned around towards that cedar thicket, I caught a rub. So I went over to investigate it. It was fresh, shavings on top of the leaves on the ground. And as I worked my way through that cedar thicket, there was there was 15 rubs in like, I don't know, <laughs> a 10-yard area in all big sign. Like There it is. All Yeah, it's like you couldn't add. Like, that's the Mike Tyson sign that just, you know, breaks your nose. Yep. Um, and there was a bed right in the middle. I mean, giant dirt-worn bed to the middle. There was a, a hard, very defined entry trail coming to the bed and a very defined exit trail that went through that uh, that plum brush and um, that, that briar thicket, basically. So I walked, you know, knowing that in my mind, I'm like, all right, well, if that deer's alive, like, I just bumped him out of here, like, 100%. Um, I didn't think it was that deer that I saw with his nose to the ground because the sign was bigger. I mean, the sign that I was seeing was thigh size from, you know, waist to chest high. I mean, they were big, big rubs, and it was... <laughs> There was stuff there from previous years as well. So it wasn't just, you know, it just wasn't from 2021. Yep. So uh, long story short, I walked that exit trail. I couldn't get set up into a tree. So I set up on the ground, kind of made myself a makeshift ground blind. And I saw just a handful of bucks that day, that afternoon, just chasing those does. The same does, same bucks, just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So I knew I was in a good spot, knew I was in the right spot. So I went back in there the next day after daylight broke um i was worried about my access about bumping those does so i wanted to make sure i could visually you know glass out in front of me and get in there clean without bumping deer because in my mind i'm like if i bump this doe i'm on a 250 acre you know walk-in piece like game's over right so i got in there clean had a a couple encounters that morning with three different deer one was a you know 150 inch buck awesome deer um one smaller buck like 110 115 inches and then a 120 inch deer i had like three feet from me um but later in that afternoon i'm sitting on the ground in this makeshift ground line and i 
you know, been on my knees all day and my knees are all cramped up. So I'm sitting flat on my butt at this point, it's three 30 in the afternoon, four o'clock in the afternoon. And I just catch some movement out in that, in that, um, in that briar and plum brush thicket. And this deer is standing behind these treetops. Um, two tops had kind of fallen over and made like an eight foot wall. I can't see through it, but I can see this deer like licking his nose and sticking, sticking his nose up in the air, but I don't see any antlers and I can never see like a full front shoulder or a full hind core. I can never see a solid visual on a deer. So I didn't, I couldn't tell what it was. Right. And this thing is like 15 yards away from me. Um, and this goes on for three or four minutes and then it starts to walk towards the Creek a little bit. And this is at like my 11 o'clock. So as this deer starts walking towards this, towards the Creek, he jumps over the, the base of that deadfall. And then I'm like, Oh my gosh, that's a giant. <laughs> I mean, freaking giant. He, and when he jumped over that log, he was at five yards from me, jumped through my shooting lane and then stopped at the base of the cedar tree that I'm set up next to. So this deer, this 170 inch buck is feet from me. I'm flat on my butt. I've got my bow up full draw. I can't shoot. I can't shoot obviously through the cedar tree. And I know if this deer takes two steps, like he's going to win me and, I'm, and the game's over. So I'm like, all right. I'm at full draw. I have a camera set up next to me. I'm in this cedar tree with limbs everywhere. I have to somehow get to my knees thinking that my shot's going to be back at like seven o'clock. Yeah. So I start to get up to my knees and then I realize like I get up to one knee and I'm like, this isn't going to work. I'm going to bump something. Deer's going to know or, you know, see me. He still doesn't know I'm there. I'm going to bump something to make some kind of noise. So I decided to let my bow down. That was a mistake because as soon as I did that deer snapped his head around and he knew like something wasn't quite right. So he stood there for, I don't know, another 10 seconds or something. Um, and when he turned his head, I was like, all right, now or never. So I drew my bow again. Well, that deer ended up turkey, turning around and took two or three steps back towards his bed. And I shot him at like five yards. Wow. Um, there was just un- like the whole encounter was like five or six minutes. It was just, it was crazy. Dude, how'd you compose, keep yourself <laughs> composed? Like I'm sitting here, my heart's racing <laughs> listening to you, man. Yeah, it was, um, again, like just, I'm usually pretty good about like not, not losing it. Um, and I was okay until I let that arrow go. And I just like watching the arrow go through that deer and knowing how big he was. I was just, I just freaked out, man. I, uh, I called my wife and FaceTime my wife and kids and they were, they were like, they were pumped. So it was, it was a pretty cool experience. Awesome, man, dude. I appreciate you so much for sharing that. that that's just awesome. And uh, man, I appreciate your time, like for coming on here and just talking trail cameras, talking about your company and what you guys are all about. I've, I've, like I said, honest to goodness, Chad, this is one that I've, I've always wanted to try to do, and you know, not necessarily, you know, I, I'm just glad that we got it done. Uh, to, to be quite honest, it was one of those. One of those uh, guests that's like, man, if I could have anybody on, it was, you know, you're one of them. And I appreciate you doing that for, for us and coming on. And I'm looking forward to meeting you again up at uh, the outdoor show coming up this weekend. So um, where could people find you at Exodus Outdoor Gear and uh, all that stuff? Yeah. Um, well, I appreciate those words, man. That's that's humbling. I think you're I think you give me too much credit, <laughs> but uh, definitely look forward to catching up with you guys again at Harrisburg. Um, any of the listeners can find us at ExodusOutdoorGear.com or any social, uh, you know, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube at Exodus Truck Cameras. 
Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much. And thanks again, everybody, for listening and tuning in and coming on live on the Bullhorn. We appreciate that. We're going to, this is going to be our, our, obviously, the platform we've been running for the last couple months now. So appreciate everybody coming on and uh, interacting with us. And uh, like I said, you'll see this one not this week, uh, but the second week of February. So that you'll still have time. Uh, if you have yet to get to the, uh, PA Outdoor Show, go go say hi to Chad and say hello to those guys and check out their products. And hopefully by that second weekend, they'll still have some product left over <laughs> for you to buy. So uh, thanks again, everybody. Till next time, Antler Up. That's a wrap for another episode of the Antler Up podcast. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this one. Chad, thank you so much for coming on. Also, definitely check us out over at Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, our go wild page we've written some articles on there as well check us out next week we got a fun episode coming out we're going to kind of be wrapping up our gear series here in the next couple weeks and get into some scouting stuff remember everybody if you have any tips or tricks or anything you want to share with us come on on and we could either talk about it as a full episode or if you want to be featured on our vortex nation highlight you could do that as well looking forward to hopefully uh Seeing some more people here this upcoming weekend. I'll still be at the Great American Outdoor Show at the Tether booth. If you're coming by, please stop by, say hello. Shout out to Mason who stopped by and said, what's up? Pleasure meeting you, buddy. Hope to see you again here this weekend. All right, everybody. Have a great week. Antler up.